0: Father, thank you for being a God we can sing about. Thank you for being a God we can sing to because of who you are and what you have done. Thank you for being our God, a personal God who gave his one and only son so that we could sing, so that we have something to sing. And thank you for the promise of an eternity with you where we will be praising the name of the Lord our God. So help us to have that focus this morning as we open your word and and where we're going to be hit right where we live with something we all struggle with. But thank you for Jesus, who came to be for us what we could not and came to do for us what we did not. Humble us this morning before him, the one who humbled himself for us. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to love. Knees to kneel before you in humble worship. For the glory of Jesus alone, I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. What a blessing it is to sing alongside of you. You have encouraged my heart this morning. And I don't know if that's good news for you or bad news for you because when my heart is encouraged, I preach longer. I hear the nervous laughs. And the one, amen. If you will find a Bible, if you don't have one with you, I really encourage you to find a Bible near you in the hymnal rack of a pew in front of you. Let's be Bible people and let's open our copies of the scriptures to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Let me just remind you that we are working our way through Mark's gospel. And we've entitled this study, Life on Purpose. And really, right here, about right here in Mark chapter 9, Jesus is changing his MO. And if you have a Bible that highlights the words of Christ in red, you're going to see that over the next couple of paragraphs, there is a lot of red. And so Mark is kind of moving us at this point in Jesus' life and ministry from action scenes to teaching scenes. And that's intentional, that's purposeful. Jesus is doing this, and I'll tell you why. He's changing his MO intentionally, and I'll tell you why in just a few moments. We need to hear what Jesus is teaching. So let's pick up the text in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30 where the Word of God says that they went on from there. That is, Jesus and His disciples went on from there. They passed through Galilee. Now, remember, Galilee is up in northern Israel. And Jesus did not want anyone to know, for He was getting alone with His disciples, teaching His disciples, saying to them, "'The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days,' He will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they reached Capernaum, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus knew that, and so he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him up in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of our God, and it is a necessary word for us. One of the most challenging tasks in preaching or teaching is finding quality stories and illustrations to drive home a point. And that's why I use so many illustrations from my personal life or from my family's life, which they love, by the way. Um... Many times I'll find an illustration, and it's such a good illustration. I'm like, this is so good. I've got to find a way to use this. And then we say something in preacher talk like this. That'll preach. And the problem with finding those kinds of illustrations is that many times, a few weeks or months later, you'll read somewhere else that that illustration or story is suspect. Like maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. So what do you do then as a pastor? Well, there's one thing you don't do. You don't throw away the illustration. It's too good. Instead, you lead off with a disclaimer. So maybe the story I'm about to tell you is true, or maybe it's just urban legend, but it's too good not to use right here. Anybody ever heard of a man by the name of Cassius Clay? We also know him as... Muhammad Ali, the longtime heavyweight boxing champion, he was aboard an airplane when a flight attendant instructed him to fasten his seatbelt before takeoff. He looked at her and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which she responded, well, Mr. Ali, Superman don't need no airplane." Now, I use that illustration this morning not just because it's a great anecdote, but because do you remember how Mr. Ali would often refer to himself as the greatest? So, how would you define greatness? I mean, true greatness. Because we live in a culture that's constantly selling us on its definition of greatness. That what makes you great is that you can hit a golf ball 350 yards straight down a fairway or that you've got an office, a corner office on the top floor or that you're going to graduate in the top 5% of your class. Culture says that greatness is all about having more than others and doing better than others and having authority over others. And if we're not careful, even as countercultural Jesus followers, we can begin to believe what our culture is preaching about greatness. And so these two scenes right here in Mark chapter 9 are essential for us because in them Jesus unpacks for us the big idea that greatness is all about humility. So let me just pause right here in this moment, at this time. And ask, do you really believe that? Do you really live that? That greatness, what you are pursuing to be great in God's kingdom, is all about humility. It's been said that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less And so greatness isn't about getting your way, it's about getting out of the way. It isn't about getting to the top, it's about staying at the bottom. It isn't about being first or being served, it's about being last of all and servant to all. Nobody is behind you or below you, regardless of their skin color or economic status or where they've been or what they've done. No task is beneath you. So guys, you aren't above folding the laundry or doing the dishes or changing the diapers. Women, that means you're willing to make yourself vulnerable and reach out to that young lady who's struggling with infertility or anxiety. Young people, that means you'll do what one of our daughters did just this past Tuesday night when I was playing plumber at at the house and, and clearing out a clogged drain in our bathroom. And she shows up to help me. Maybe that's because she wondered about my plumbing abilities. (laughs) She stayed until I was done. And then she helped clean up. All without being asked. Because the gunk and odor of a clogged drain was not beneath her. That's how Jesus defines greatness in these back-to-back scenes. And that doesn't just surprise the disciples, it actually shocks the disciples because Jesus doesn't just tweak our culture's concept of greatness. He turns it upside down and inside out. And it all begins right here in verse 30 where we see greatness illustrated in Jesus. Because he gets the disciples away from the crowds. Away from the public shame and embarrassment of what they've just been unable to do when they could not cast a demon out of a boy. That's what we looked at last week in verses 14 through 29. These guys have just experienced a colossal failure in front of everyone. And Jesus shows us what humility looks like in real life in how he responds to his disciples when they've blown it, when they've been self-confident and self-reliant and proud, when they've thought that they could do the work of God apart from God and without God That's why they couldn't cast the demon out of the boy. They were depending upon themselves and their power rather than God and his power. And here's Jesus immediately following this embarrassing scene for them and he's being patient with them. He's not quitting on them. He's removing them. He's showing compassion to them. He's guarding the dignity of his disciples. That's what humble people do. Parents, that's one way you can humble yourself with your children. When your child causes a scene at Target, you don't add to the scene. You guard their dignity by removing them from the public eye to correct them. Husbands, you don't shame your wife to your guy friends. Wives, You don't diss your husband to your girlfriends. As followers of Jesus, you do the humble thing. You guard the dignity of others, just like Jesus does here when he leaves the crowds behind. Even though the people are enthralled with him and taken with him, he's going to keep a low profile now. You know why? Because the cross isn't any longer years away, it's months away. And so he's got to disciple the disciples. Time is short. He's got to get alone time with his guys. He's got to prepare them to do life and ministry without him following his death and resurrection and ascension. And so as they're walking through Galilee in northern Israel to Capernaum, that small fishing community on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He says to them as they're walking along. I love, I love, listen, how much of Jesus' teaching takes place in the course of normal, everyday life? Don't think that God is not involved in your Monday tomorrow when you go to work. Don't think that God is not involved tomorrow on your way to work. Because notice here that what Jesus teaches and a very important truth happens while he and the disciples are on their way from one place to another. When he says to them, hey guys, I just want to remind you where this all ends. It all ends at a cross. And I want you to notice the verb tense here. That Jesus doesn't just say this once and then move on. He keeps on saying it. He is teaching them. This is the topic of conversation, at least part of the way to Capernaum. And Jesus begins by saying, the Son of Man. Now that's significant because that's a messianic title that Jesus rips from the pages of the Old Testament book of Daniel and applies to himself and if you go back and read specifically in Daniel chapter 7 of how Daniel uses that term son of man it's referring to the Messiah coming in glory and power and majesty and authority and then Jesus says I want you to know what that means what power and authority and majesty looks like It looks like I am going to die. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So why does Jesus choose this time and this place to teach these guys a second time that he's going to die? Three reasons, I think. First, the message of Jesus' death crushes our pride by revealing our sin. The message of the cross humbles us. Jesus doesn't get the disciples away from it all and say, Hey guys, listen, what happened back there when you couldn't cast that demon out because of your self-confidence? Hey, hey n- no big deal. I get that all of us have a bad day. I get that you didn't get lunch and so you were a bit hangry. And then on top of that, you had the scribes breathing down your necks and so you were under a lot of pressure. No, Jesus doesn't minimize the gravity of their sin. Instead, he tells them that he is going to die for their sin so the message of the cross kills our self-confidence and self-righteousness. It tells us that we'll never be enough or do enough to earn our salvation. That's why Jesus has to die for us. And that's why Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 11 say this, that while we were still weak and still ungodly and still sinners and still God's enemies, that while we were still all that, Jesus dies for us. So Jesus doesn't begin the restoration and rebuilding process with his guys by telling them how great they are or even how great they can be. He begins by telling them that because they've blown it, he will die for them. And so their failure in sin won't have the final say with them. His grace will. And this is where I need to stop and ask a question. What will have the final say with you? You see, there are only two options here. Either your sin will have the final and eternal say with you, or God's grace flowing to you through Jesus will have the final say with you. That's why Jesus dies. Jesus does not die For his sin, he dies for the sins of all who will trust in him. So that instead of getting what we deserve for our sin, because the Bible says in Romans 3 verse 23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says that the wages of that sin is death. And Jesus steps between our sin and its consequences and he takes the consequences for our sin upon himself and he dies that death. The perfect, sinless, holy Son of God dies the death of a sinner like me. Stepping between my sin and its eternal consequences so that grace can have and will have the final say in my life when I repent of my sins and embrace him by faith. Jesus gets my sin. I get his grace. When I place my faith in him. That's why Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 say that you have been saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift, unearnable, undeservable. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that, Romans 10 verse 9 says, that if you will will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Can I ask you this morning, have you been saved from your sins? Have you trusted in Jesus to step between your sin and its eternal consequences, to take your sin and to replace it with his grace so that grace will have the final say with you forever? Are you trusting in Jesus? Have you repented? If not, you can do that right here, right now. Cry out to him in your heart and trust in him. Because when you come to Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, then the message of the cross doesn't just crush your pride by revealing your sin. It also assures you of his love even when you've sinned. The cross says that the one who dies for us will never turn his back on us. And Jesus wants his guys to know that right here, right now. They've got to get this. Because they've just come off a massive, super failure. Guys, Jesus says, I want you to get this, so read my lips. I'm going to be killed. You know what that means? It means that Jesus isn't just predicting how, that he'll die. He's predicting how he'll die. These, Jesus doesn't just know what's coming for him. He's in control of what's coming for him. You know what that means? It means that the cross is no accident. Jesus goes to the cross with his eyes wide open. And because the cross is no accident, your salvation is no afterthought. We are saved intentionally, purposefully, eternally. We are loved with a never stopping, never quitting, never giving up kind of love. A love that is greater than our sin and stronger than our sin and longer than our sin Because Jesus promises that on the third day he will rise again victorious over our sin. And that means we live in the perpetual grip of grace that is greater than our sin. That's why Romans 6 verse 14 says that sin will have no dominion, no power, no authority over you. Why? Because you're not under law. You live in the grip of grace. So let me ask, when you find yourself where these disciples are right here, when your self-reliance, your self-confidence, your your pride leads you to fall flat on your face, what do you do? Where do you go? Can I just be open and honest and transparent here this morning? You know where I tend to go? I tend to run and hide from Jesus. Jesus. But we see here—that's not how he wants us or invites us to respond. He wants us to go to him because at the cross he was forsaken, so that we would never be forsaken. Don't run from him. Run to him to be with him. His grace isn't just enough to forgive you when you sin. It's enough to free you from the grip of that sin and then transform your failure into greatness. Because thirdly, the message of the cross calls us to follow Jesus and laying down our lives like Jesus. Jesus is teaching his disciples that greatness doesn't take the shape of a throne, but the shape of a cross. That's why he has already said back in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Now, in our culture, in our society, we have a, a saying that is based really upon what Jesus says there, to take up your cross. It kind of goes like this. Um, Somebody will say something like, I'm a Cubs fan. That's just my cross to bear. Or, don't get mad at me, I drive a Chevy, that's just my cross to bear. No, no. The cross isn't just some minor annoyance or inconvenience. The cross is an instrument of death. The cross is a call to die to myself, to my pride, to my rights and my privileges and my prerogatives, and to lay my life down in following Jesus. But notice here, the disciples don't get it, at least Well, maybe they do. And maybe that's why they don't ask Jesus for clarification or more information. Maybe they get just enough of of what Jesus is saying about, here's what power and majesty and glory for the Son of Man looks like. It looks like dying. Maybe they get just enough of that to know, you know, we really don't want to know anymore. They're afraid to ask. And so Jesus, knowing that, is going to spell out for them what greatness is by defining greatness for them. It's when they arrive in Capernaum. And notice here in verse 33 that when they came to Capernaum, when he was in the house, not a house, the house. Well, what's the house? Whose house? Well, if you remember that Peter and Andrew are brothers, fishermen, who are followers of Jesus, who grew up in Capernaum, and earlier in Mark, we know that, that we, we, we learn that um, their home, Peter's house, kind of is set up as a home base or a headquarters for Jesus and the disciples when they are in Capernaum, and so they're probably hanging out here in Peter's house. They're glad the trip is over. Maybe they're waiting on dinner, chatting together, when suddenly silence kind of descends upon the room. And Jesus asks, Guys? Um, the last part of the trip here, I noticed that you had kind of fallen back and uh, just wonder what were you chatting about? Now, if you're a parent... That's not an unusual question, right? What were you guys talking about? I mean, the kids are in the back of the minivan. They're whispering. They're trying to keep their conversation secret. But as a parent, you not only have eyes in the back of your, ear, your head, you have supersonic ears, right? You hear everything. And So you're picking up on just enough of the conversation to know that you need to know more. And so, like Jesus here, you ask, Hey, what have you guys been talking about? And you get the same response from your kids that Jesus gets from the disciples. Silence. Why? Because they've been found out. They're guilty and they know it because verse 34 tells us that on the way, the disciples had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And it wasn't just a chat. It wasn't just a discussion. The Greek word here tells us that it was a heated debate. It was a knockdown, drag-out word fight about who was number one, who was top dog, who was king of the hill. And that's especially significant because their discussion had followed hard on the heels of Jesus saying, I am going. To die. What happens here on the road to Capernaum is why Jesus has to die. Look at what sin does to the hearts of people, even the followers of Jesus. Look at what it does to my own heart. Sin fills me with me. Sin presses me into the center of the universe where the world revolves around me. That's why it feels so good when I win the argument with my wife. Things are as as they're supposed to be. That's why it feels so good when I pull into the driveway driving a nicer car than my neighbor. That's how it's supposed to be. That's why it feels so good when I step over a co-worker as I climb the corporate ladder. This is what I deserve. Sin causes me to forget God by making me think I am God. It sounds so ridiculous to say out loud, but I find myself thinking it in here. Like when I was driving our daughter Mary to school here on Thursday morning. And we're on a two-lane road, we're on Shoe Factory, and we're stuck behind someone going 30 in a 40 where everybody goes 50. 30 miles an hour. And I find myself thinking, doesn't this slowpoke know who I am and where I'm going and what I need to be doing the audacity that they would only be thinking of themselves so much that they're driving 30 in a 40 when I've got to get to the church and finish my sermon on humility. (laughs) But perhaps I'm not the only one that's pressed myself into the center of my universe this past week. Maybe for you it was the satisfaction that came from that perfectly timed put-down, or from finally telling off the boss, or from letting your child have it, and then turning and walking away. I mean, we can't begin to think that we would not have been right here on this road with these disciples, offering evidence on why we are greater than the next guy. This is us. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15 says that Jesus dies for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves or to themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so Jesus, knowing what they've discussed on the road, says to them, guys, come here. We need to talk. And Jesus sits down. Now, I can still remember my dad saying the same thing to me as a teenager. And the one thing you did not want dad to do after he said, come here, let's talk, was sit down. Because then you knew it was serious. Just like it is for these disciples. In Jewish culture, to sit down and teach was to assume a position of authority. It's what, what rabbis did in Jesus' day. And so Peter's living room is transformed into Jesus' classroom. And he says, guys, if anyone would be first of all, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus is not condemning the desire to be great. He's defining what it means to be great. It's all about how you see the person you see in the mirror. It's all about how you view yourself in relation to God and others. It's an attitude of the heart. It's a deep-seated willingness to be last of all. That's what it means to be first. It's being the servant of all. That's what it means to be great. And to illustrate his point, Jesus picks up a little boy who happens to be running through that living room at that specific moment, and he takes him up in his arms, and in the middle of this group of disciples, Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus is talking about serving people when there's nothing in it for you. You see, a child can't pay you back for what you do for them. It's like when you volunteer in the church nursery or in our Wednesday night kids ministry. And when mom and dad come to pick up that child, you aren't going to get a standing ovation from those children. You aren't going to get paybacks, mom and dad, when you change your child's diaper or give them a bath or clean up their vomit. They aren't going to say, you know, mom and dad sure love me. I know they would appreciate an extra hour of sleep, so I think I'll sleep in. Serving those who can't repay us proves that we love and follow Jesus. Because on the night of his betrayal and arrest, as he's staring death in the face... He sits in an upper room around a table with his disciples while they engage in another heated conversation. You remember what they were talking about? The very same thing. Which of them is the grace? And as the debate intensifies... Jesus silently pushes away from the table and walks to the door of that room, not to leave, but to pick up the basin and the towel. And like the lowest house servant, Jesus kneels at the feet of these disciples and one by one washes away the dirt and animal excrement. That's greatness. Being least of all and servant of all. That's Jesus, who doesn't just kneel at the feet of these men. He will crawl onto a cross for these men and for us. And He calls to us to follow Him there and to die. So how do we do that? What are the takeaways from this text? I have two of them for you. First, this morning... Humility is always the byproduct of God's grace. So recognize that. Don't walk out of here this morning thinking, I'm trying harder, I'm doing more, I, I, I've got this. Don't fall into the trap of self-confidence and self-reliance. Listen, this text proves to us that humility doesn't come naturally to us. Pride does. Our parents didn't have to teach us to look out for number one. We came pre-wired that way. You see, sin hasn't just made humility countercultural. Sin has made humility seem counterintuitive. And so we need God to work humility in us. It's Philippians 2, verse 13. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But here's the thing God's grace works on us by working in us, enabling us to take practical steps in cultivating that humility. So let me give you three practical steps that each of us can take. Number one, attempt things that are beyond you. Because pride loves comfort. But humility thrives when God stretches us beyond ourselves. We've got to be willing to do things that don't come naturally to us. You're like, okay, Pastor Ken, when I go home today, I'll be willing to give up, you know, relinquish control of the TV remote for two hours. You can do better than that. If you struggle with having the courage to talk to someone about Jesus, would you pray right now and ask God to give you that courage and then ask God to give you an opportunity to put that courage into action, to stretch you? so that you learn to depend on him. If you find that you have a hard time talking to people who aren't like you, would you take the step of faith and seek someone out? Strike up a conversation with them, get to know them, love on them? Or maybe you find it very comfortable that because you don't know what to say to someone you know is hurting and you're afraid you'll say the wrong thing at the wrong time or in the wrong way, that you'll just kind of ignore them. Would you take a step of obedience here? Would you step outside your comfort zone and just be with them? and walk with them, and love them. When we attempt things that stretch us, we experience the power of God's grace at work in us, like we do when we listen when others are speaking. I want to challenge you to really work on that, listening when others are speaking. Don't just hear, listen. Because pride is quick to ignore or to dismiss what others are saying or to turn that conversation and kind of spin it to revolve around us like the disciples are doing right here. You know, we've all got blind spots in our lives where pride shows up. And listening when others speak into our lives about those blind spots will help us to cultivate humility. But I think probably the easiest step that we can take toward humility this morning is this one. Identify one new way that you can serve others. You know, maybe it's at home. Maybe it's at work. Maybe there's a task at work that nobody wants to do and that nobody does until they are asked. And when they're asked, they roll their eyes and they sigh and they do it. But they don't do it with a good humble heart. Nobody likes to do that. But maybe God is saying to you, you know what, you can be, you can be an example of humility. You can, you can point others to Jesus just by doing this task once a week or once a month that nobody else wants to do. You volunteer for it. Because people will then ask, what's wrong with you? And you'll have an opportunity to tell them. Maybe it's that you get involved in a way here at Bethel that you haven't been involved with before. Maybe it's walking up to a guest this morning and welcoming them by introducing yourself to them and loving them. God's grace becomes visible in our lives when we aren't just hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. So let's humble ourselves and serve others in a new way because, second takeaway this morning, Because the true test of a servant is how you respond when you're treated like one. You see, humility and entitlement cannot coexist. The words, I serve and I deserve, do not mesh. And so the question when serving isn't, will I be recognized and appreciated and made much of by others? It's will I make much of Jesus by serving others. He proves that in God's kingdom the only way up is by going down. Because greatness isn't about getting. It's about giving. And not just our stuff. Ourselves. Laying down our lives for the one who laid down His life for us. So Bethel, let's follow Jesus in being last of all and servants of all. Let's be a humble people and by His grace and for His glory He will make us a great people. That's His promise in James 4 verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. That's Greatness. Amen. Father, may you take your word and by your spirit point us to your Son and by your grace make us like him. Can I ask this morning, are you a follower of Jesus? Have you trusted in him? Have you humbled yourself before him saying, I can't do it. I can't work my way into your good good graces. I am going to depend completely and entirely and totally upon Jesus and what you have done for me. Have you repented of your sins and embraced him by faith alone? I say to you, the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Would you trust him and Christian? Would you serve others? Would you humble yourself? Would you be last of all? Would you kneel at the feet of the people God has surrounded you with and serve like Jesus? Would you be great for his glory? In his name, amen.